Good morning, all. Would you please turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 35. We're going to cover some ground this morning, so hang on. Uh, An old friend of mine once told me how he and his brother used to act whenever their mom would give them order, like an order or some instructions, they would see, they would race to see who could do it the quickest, and of course, probably not the best, but whoever won the race of obedience would turn to his brother and yell, if you were in the army, you'd be dead by now. I suppose such is the case with boys. But there are are many things you could say, right, about soldiers in the army. We could discuss their bravery, their incredible self-sacrifice, their patriotism, and, and so much more. But one thing that might be crystal clear in what my friend and his brother picked up on early, at an early age is that one thing that's always marked the brave men who have served is this unyielding commitment to obey orders. I've had students in the past who, while they were at, in my class, were troublemakers, openly defiant and rebellious. And they graduate, and you as the teacher worry. And then you find out that they went into the military, and They've come back to town, and you just don't recognize them. Their clothes have changed. Their demeanor is markedly different. And one of the key things they communicate about that change is that in the military, they were taught the importance of authority, bringing order to chaos, and to obey orders immediately without question. Now, how often do you or I, when given orders from our bosses or spouses or whoever immediately, we begin to rationalize and ask ourselves if what I'm being asked to do makes any sense to me and if I really need to do it that way or maybe there's probably a better way. But obedience in the military is not simply so that immature young men can learn some, some structure, but obedience is demanded because life and death is in the balance. Obeying or disobeying orders in battle can mean the difference between completing the mission or you or your fellow soldier next to you dying in the battlefield. In short, obedience and disobedience have consequences. Now, stakes are rarely that high for you and me in our day-to-day lives. Whether or not my kids listen to me about picking up the toys in the basement, it's not a one-to-one correlation to soldiers on the battlefield, but it would be foolish to deny any connection at all. Every act of obedience or disobedience in all of life really does bring real-world consequences. And it's a truth, I would say, universally acknowledged that where there is disobedience, there is disfellowship. When orders in the army are disobeyed, lives are in danger and court-martials ordered. When commands are disobeyed in the workplace, reports are written up and jobs are on the line. When commands are disobeyed in the home, discipline and instruction, confession and reconciliation is needed. And as we saw in Exodus 32 and thir- through 34, when the people of God disobey God, they experience disfellowship with him. Now, remember Exodus 33, after the whole, what we'll call the golden calf fiasco, the Lord commands Moses to depart from the mountain, to go take the land that he had promised them, with one key difference, he would not go with them. Exodus 33, four says, when the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned and no one put on his ornaments. The blessed presence of God has been 
and always will be the defining feature of the people of God. And the structure of this large chunk of Exodus that we're going to look at today, and we're going to examine five chapters, so again, hang on, it reflects a lot of ways ground we've already covered. Exodus 25 through 30, Pastor Ryan preached, where God first details to Moses the intricate instructions to build the tabernacle for the expressed purpose of, Exodus 29, 45, that I will dwell among the people of Israel and I will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord, their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord, their God. They were expected to obey God, to deliver on building the tabernacle that he had prescribed for the purpose of dwelling with them. However, we know everything went south when Moses went back down the mountain. Even though God had worked such incredible wonders before their eyes, had preserved them through the journey to Mount Sinai, and now had given them this gracious law, which was to serve as this covenantal glue between God and the nation. Not only that, but the God of the mountain was committed to dwell in their midst, Exodus 25, and let them make me a sanctuary that I might dwell in their midst. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all its furniture, so you shall make it. This great promise, this ultimate goal of God to have for himself a people with whom he could dwell, it's sandwiched between the giving of the law in Exodus 20 through 24 and the command to and the command and instruction to build the tabernacle exactly as I show you. But instead of obedience, the people quickly abandon the God who saves. And they not only break the second commandment to make the golden calf, they put that pagan idol in their midst and give it their worship and esteem. In short, they disobey. And the difficult and humbling reality of this book, this book that we've been walking through now for almost a year and a half, is that we can locate ourselves in these foolish Silly, petty, grumbly, sinful, disobedient Israelites. I have sinned. You and I have sinned. And like the Israelites, that sin, is, it's just not this like ethereal, distant mistake, but it manifests itself in real and discernible ways. My sin is not simply being short-tempered, but it manifests and bears fruit in real life specific situations like a sharp word I say to my wife. That's a real sin stemming from a sinful root that really does need to be repented of. There really is a earthly and fleshly old man that continuously needs to be put off and put to death. But what is also clear from this entire book of Exodus, but here also in our section today, is that the Lord has not abandoned his people. Despite their foolishness, despite their wickedness, he has purchased them, and he loves them, and he will not leave them as they are. So, if they are not to remain as they are, if we're not to remain as we are, then what does it look like to be a part of God's covenantal family? Now, this large text answers the simple question, what is Christian obedience? What is its source? What are its discernible markings, and, and what does it bring about? 
So as we survey this large section, we will see four different marks of obedience, what it is and what it is not. Now, it would take us quite literally the entire morning to read this text. We're not going to read the entire section, but we're going to drop in and into some highlights along the way. But out of reverence for God's word, would you please rise if you're able as I read the opening three verses of Exodus chapter 35, 1 through 3. Moses assembled all the congregation of the people of Israel and said to them, these are the things that the Lord has commanded you to do. Six days work shall be done, but on the seventh day you shall have a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. You shall kindle no fire in all your dwelling places on the Sabbath day. Let's pray. Lord, would you do a miraculous work and, and bless the preaching of your word. Would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear, to see and to hear the wondrous things of your word, we ask now in Christ. Amen. You may be seated. So the first marker or descriptor of Christian obedience, I believe that we can glean from this section of Exodus 35 through 40, beginning in these opening verses is this. First, obedience begins with dependence. It begins with dependence. As we've said before, this large section, it mirrors in a lot of ways ground we've already covered. In, in Exodus 25, Moses is commanded to collect from the people contributions for the tabernacle. Exodus 25 through 31 describes God laying out to Moses and thus all the people the exact specifications and instructions for crafting that same tabernacle. And then the section ends in the end of chapter 31 with commands from God to the people about a Sabbath rest. Exodus 31, 12 through 13. And the Lord said to Moses, you are to speak to the people of Israel and say, above all you shall keep my Sabbaths. For this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. After this, after this Exodus 31, God gives Moses the first tablets of the testimony written again by the very finger of God. And then Moses heads down the mountain to deliver to the people this gracious law given to them by God and the instructions to create a mobile structure that would allow the very presence of God to dwell in with them. It's incredible. But of course, you recall what follows. The people could not abide waiting for Moses to come down off the mountain, so they took to their own devices and decided to worship God in the way that they deemed best and the only way they knew, like Egyptians. But here, in Exodus 35, the order changes. Instead of ending with a call for Sabbath rest, Moses begins with it. In this section, the instruction God gave back in 25 through 31 are no longer in the theory stage, but have now moved into the implementation stage. And to keep their steps steady, Moses begins by reminding them all that all that they have is from the Lord. And by beginning with the Sabbath rest, Moses is aiming to keep the main thing the main thing. Victor Hamilton comments on this passage saying, 
Saving some topic for last can be a way of designating the last item a climactic one or giving it the status of a tack-on. Perhaps Moses begins the way he does, lest the people so focus on the magnitude of the directives he's about to give them that they miss the two-verse footnote of the Sabbath he adds at the end. Much better to get it wrong about sea cow hides than to get it wrong about the Sabbath. <laughs> well said. In a lot of ways, the call for Sabbath rest in Exodus 35, it reflects the fourth commandment where it finds its basis. And if you recall, when we preached on that particular command last summer, Pastor Logan made clear that the Sabbath is supposed to function as a holy day, a day where business as usual is ceased and devoted to the worship and honor of the glorious God who saves. The Sabbath is meant to function as this built-in pause to remind you of your need and your dependence on the God who gives good gifts to his children, which is something that we are very easily tempted to forget. And after the whole golden calf fiasco, no doubt the people were eager to obey to make amends for their disobedience. So it makes sense that Moses, he may have recognized that the people may be tempted to over-eagerness and nonstop work until everything was completed. This could lead to the temptation that they could actually earn God's favor through their very efforts, as if they could make it up on their own strength. To combat that, Moses reminds them they must begin with rest. And we can be plagued with similar temptations, can we not? In the aftermath of a sin against God and in a vain attempt to, to make it up to him, we might try to work to repay that debt of forgiveness to us in Christ. But if that is our attitude, we will still be operating out of our own sufficiency, still desperately holding on to our good works as a way to make transactions with God. We do this, and you give us this. We obey, and you bless us. If I don't sin this week, you, you have to do this. You have to give this to me. But that's not covenantal logic, nor is it gospel logic. All we have, all that we are, is a gracious gift from God to us. And that greatest gift to us is his son, our Lord Jesus Christ, who, through his life, death, resurrection, has purchased us for himself. Any obedience we do, and to be clear, we must do, finds its origin not in our own strength, but as a gracious provision of God to us in Christ. Recall this majestic passage in Ephesians 2. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Critically, this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God. Not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Our obedience, these good works Paul mentions, are solely based in the glorious gift of grace from God to us in Christ Jesus. That must be our foundation, where we begin and where we end. If we're going to understand our obedience and what we are called to do, it must be very clear that it begins with our desperate need, and particularly our need for a gracious and glorious Savior. And good news, my friends, we have such a Savior. 
Number two, our obedience is marked by sacrificial giving. It's marked by sacrificial giving. Now, anyone who's ever built a building or simply done any home project, which I know I've done plenty, knows that there are two vital steps that must be undertaken before a shovel is put in the ground or a board is cut. Plans and materials. Those two things. The Israelites have been given the plans and now they're called to gather the materials. Exodus 35, four through five. Moses said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, this is the thing that the Lord has commanded. Take from among you a contribution to the Lord. Whoever is of a generous heart, let him bring the Lord's contribution. Notice, Moses' call is grounded in the command of God, but it's also marked by a certain disposition, this generous heart. This is another critical reason why Moses begins this renewed process of building the tabernacle, which was interrupted by their disobedience with the golden calf, by highlighting their dependence on God, all that they have, their very freedom, food in their bellies, protection from their enemies, and even the materials by which they can use to create this tabernacle is a gift given to them from the gracious hand of God. Remember the actual Exodus event, all the way back in chapter 12, Exodus 12. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing, and the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. Thus, they plundered the Egyptians. No Israelite standing at the foot of Mount Sinai hearing Moses' command to contribute to the tabernacle material could honestly say that they had purchased this silver and gold on their own, that they had earned it, as if it was theirs by, by right, no, all of what they had was theirs solely because of the sovereign, majestic, glorious wonders and provision of the Lord. So, so it is with us. I find I'm most hesitant to give when I'm concerned about my own financial security or my own sense of, no, no, this is mine. How foolish of me. Had not the Lord proven the provision for the Israelites over and over and over again in the wilderness and now at the mountain, has he not provided for you and for me every morning, even this morning? Paul makes the same connection when he commends to the Corinthian church, the Macedonian church. The churches in Macedonia, although buried in affliction and persecution and extreme poverty, they gave abundantly. Paul names this act of giving not as just some charitable, honorable thing, but he gives glory to the source of it by calling it the grace of God that has been given to the churches in Macedonia. And he makes it crystal clear when he connects their giving to the majestic work of Christ in 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9, this famous passage, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. That is scandalous. That, that is amazing grace. That's the gospel we love put into financial terms. It's the bedrock of this cheerful giving that we'll later, 
Paul will uh, talk about in 2 Corinthians 9. And I, I pray that that might be said of Emmaus Road Church, that the grace of God has been given to this church, overflowing and abundant and joyful giving, even in the midst of inflation and financial uncertainty. And, and look how it resulted in the Israelites back in Exodus 35. And, and pay attention to the motivations of the people. Exodus 35, 20. Then all the congregation of the people of Israel departed from the presence of Moses, and they came. Everyone whose heart stirred him, and everyone whose spirit moved him, and brought the Lord's contribution to be used for the tent of meeting and for its service and for the holy garments. So they came, both men and women, all who were of a willing heart, brought brooches and earrings and signet rings and armlets, all sorts of gold objects, every man dedicating an offering of gold to the Lord, all the men and women, the people of Israel, whose heart moved them to bring anything for the work that the Lord had commanded by Moses to be done, brought it as a freewill offering to the Lord. The people were not being forced to give. They were not giving out of some compulsion or duty or force. They gave willingly as the Spirit of God moved in them and as their hearts were stirred. And, and critically, the people did not just give of their finances and material possessions as if those are the only things that come to us by God's gracious hand, but they gave their time, gave their, enemy, or their energies, their, their skills. Look at Exodus 36 too. And Moses called Bezalel and Ohaliab and every craftsman in whose mind the Lord had put skill. Everyone whose heart stirred him up to come to do the work. And look how it overflows in abundance, 36, 3 through 5. And they received from Moses all the contributions that the people of Israel had brought for doing the work of the sanctuary. They still kept bringing him free will offerings every morning so that all the craftsmen who were doing every sort of task on the sanctuary came, each from the task that he was doing, and said to Moses, the people bring much more than enough for doing the work that the Lord has commanded us to do, starting with their dependents, marked by generous, glad-hearted, sacrificial giving of their time, the material. We are starting to see a, a wholly new Israel, one marked by faithfulness and obedience. May the same be said of us. Number three, the third mark of Christian obedience. Obedience manifests in acting the miracle. Acting the miracle. They, they had the plans, and now they had the materials. All that was left was to bring it about. It might be tempting to say, hey, we did it. We've rested in the provision of God. We've brought forth all our materials. Now let's just sit back and see what God will do. But that's not how God works. God's incredible, miraculous promises made secure and yes and amen in the finished work of Christ, that it never excludes human agency. Rather, it is through weak, broken vessels that the glorious gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ is displayed through our obedience. Look at how this looked in the Israelite camp, Exodus 39. Thus, all the work of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting was finished. And the people of Israel did according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses. So they did. And Moses saw all the work, and behold, they had done it. 
And as the Lord had commanded, so they had done it. Then Moses blessed them. Chapters 36 through 39 depict the people going step by step through the instructions the Lord had given them regarding the construction of the temple and obeying at every step. Where they had failed before, now they obey. The instructions that had been given to them by God, the materials and skills had been given to them by God. Thus, no Israelite could stand at the, next to the finished product and say, wow, look what we did. <laughs> Rather, all glory would go to the one who took up residence there, God himself. John Piper famously has called this process acting the miracle. The miracle of God, this unfathomable, gracious gift of the forgiveness of Christ resulting in faith in Christ, it now moves us. It moves us to live obedient lives that, that manifest in, in real work. In short, it, it's like acting the miracle. We, we have referenced this passage multiple times in this sermon series, but it's worth repeating. Paul in Titus chapter 2 says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. The same grace that appeared in Christ resulting in our salvation is the very same grace that now trains us to live obediently in this present age. Because of Christ, and only because of Christ, we are able to obey the commands he gives us. Not perfectly, of course, we're still waiting for the fullness of our holiness when our Lord appears again in glory. But that glorious gospel, it has implications in our daily life now, in how I interact with my wife, how you interact with your wife or your husband or your kids or your roommates or your jobs, everything. The command of God really must be obeyed, but not as a way to earn favor from God or to put him in our debt somehow. How could we ever do that? For from him and through him and to him are all things so that he alone gets all the glory forever. And my friends, we must guard our hearts from assuming that every call to obey the commands of God is legalism. Our dear friend Jeff Perswell, he just says it so well when he says this. Every command in scripture is an invitation to come to God, to encounter God and to receive from God faith-filled, undaunted resolve to magnify Christ with all that we are, with all that we are. So my friends, accept the invitation of our Lord's commands. Act the miracle, starting first with our desperate need for God's provision to us in Christ, allowing that grace to have its way in our hearts and to manifest in, in cheerful giving of ourselves to others. That must result in living that out in our everyday lives and rejoice in the result of that obedience. Number four, fourth mark of obedience. It results in fellowship. 
Remember the goal of this entire tabernacle project. Exodus 25, 8 through 9. And let them make me a sanctuary that I might dwell in their midst. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so you shall make it. You see, obedience is never an exercise in futility. It's never just do it because I said so. No. The goal of this project was stated at the very beginning. Fellowship with God. That is the ultimate goal of the entire book of Exodus. It's why God raised up Moses in the first place. It's, it's why he brought the Israelites out of Egypt. It's why he's provided for them in the desert and why he brought them to the very mountain. It's why God gave them this gracious commandments and, and gave them commandments applied in this incredible case law, a functioning case law. And it's why God forgave and renewed his covenant with the people after they disobeyed him, after they worshiped a false God. All of it was, one for, was for one singular purpose, that I might dwell in their midst. Don't miss this. Don't downplay the significance of this from, from the very creation of the world. The plan of God has been to dwell in the midst of a people. People who were made in his very image and likeness and who were able to subdue and rule this world as his vice regents until the very knowledge of the glory of the Lord covered the entire earth as the waters cover the sea. In fact, that's why God created the world in the first place. It's why he's created you. Exodus 35 through 40, it, it's not some boring reading of some people group in the desert constructing a tent. <laughs> Cosmic realities are at play. The Israelites' faith, their trusting in the promises of God, it brings unity among the people and will end in the very glory of the Lord descending off the mountain and into their midst. He is committed to go with them and to make a way to be with them. When considering our obedience to the commands of God, when we consider the fruit of the Spirit and its evidence in our lives, are we aware of the goal? Are we aware of becoming more and more like Christ? As we approach Christmas and, and as we ponder the birth of a child in some nondescript town in some back alley shed to a couple of no-name people from nowhere, are we aware of what gift has been given? John knew it. John knew it and saw it. John 1:14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. That's who we worship. That is the greatest gift of all. Through the glorious person of Jesus in his redeeming work on our behalf, you and I now receive something unimaginable, God himself. And when we receive that glorious gift of his fellowship, it manifests itself in godly obedience. I don't believe anybody has said it better or could say it better than Jesus as he sums it up in John 15 when he says, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, Unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. 
you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, notice, apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into a fire and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you. Why? So that my joy may be in you, and your joy may be full. Don't you want your joy to be full? (laughs) Don't you want to abide in this gracious Savior's love? How? How do you do that? Jesus tells us. If you keep my commandments, you abide in my love. My friends, obedience is possible. And the presence of God accessible to all who belong to Christ. The great hymn writer J.H. Samus puts it perfectly in this, his famous hymn, Trust and Obey. When we walk with the Lord, in the light of his word. What a glory he sheds on our way. While we do his good will, he abides with us still, and to all who will trust and obey. Then in fellowship sweet, we will sit at his feet, or we'll walk by his side in the way. What he says, we will do. Where he sends, we will go. Never fear. Only trust and obey. Trust and obey, for there is no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Dear friends, abide in him. Trust him. Rest in him. Obey him. And experience today, today, the blessed, happy presence of the Father secured for you in Christ and experienced through his spirit. Let's pray. Father, we don't want to be the branches that bear no fruit, that are gathered and thrown into the fire. Recognize left on our own, that's exactly what we are. And yet, You have not abandoned us. You have not left us alone. In spite of our weakness, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And that death now means we belong to you. We abide in you as you abide in us. Oh God, would you give us your spirit more this morning? Keep steady our steps. Help us along the way. Guard our way. Because we want you. We're looking to you. Until the end when we will finally see you 
face to face. Oh God, we long for that day. But even now, in this present age, would you, your grace be manifest among us. May you receive all the glory that is due you. For from you and to you, through you are all things. To you be the glory forever. Amen.